0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of
1: Reuters news.
0: Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly podcast brought to you by Reuters. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views. Well, it's been a pretty exciting week here in the global views factory. The extraordinary unwinding of Archigos Capital. Investor Bill Huang's family office was one of the most amazing stories. It's one of those ones that connects Breaking View's columnists from Hong Kong, New York, Zurich, London, Melbourne and Washington to one big, hardworking family. For this week's podcast, I grabbed a few of them to get their views on what the episode tells us about Wall Street and global financial markets. Anthony Curry in Melbourne recalled the LTCM blow up of the late 1990s. And of course, the great financial crisis of 2008. Jen Hughes in Hong Kong looks at what it means for one of the big losers, Nomura, that got burned to the tune of about $2 billion by Archegos. And Liam Proud in London has written a piece about Credit Suisse, the biggest bank to take a huang hit, and how it will need to reconsider its strategy and structure as a new chairman takes over in a few weeks. After that, I talked to Gina Chan in Washington to get a handle on what this whole thing tells us about regulation, or rather the many holes in the framework to keep financial markets stable and jen seba new jersey checks in to talk about spongebob squarepants or more accurately viacom cbs the media company whose precipitous stock decline may actually have been the straw that broke the camel's back and set Archigos on its extraordinary unwinding this week give a listen greetings melbourne hong kong and london got you all together because all three of you, Jen in Hong Kong, Liam in London, and Anthony in Melbourne, uh, were all converging on this great big story. Once again, a surprising Wall Street. I wouldn't call it a scandal, but a, a screw up. Um, it's uh, Anthony. It's kind of surprising that we're still surprised, isn't it? That these kinds of things come out. Archegos Capital Management. Talking yeah, about that. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, yeah, when I, I sort of got up and, and saw this news, I had to quickly pinch myself and look around because I couldn't tell whether I was in 2021 or 2008 or 1998 or one of the other years where I've seen this kind of blow up happen. I say this kind of blow up. This is, of course, every everyone, every single one has its own unique issues. But, you know,
1: <laughs> this
2: one and is this like one had characteristic. So many Wall Street misses lots of warning signs. Right.
0: Like you, you mentioned 1998, I'm, I assume you're looking at long-term capital management in that sense, you know, the example of a hedge fund that over leveraged itself, a position or a few positions went bad and it had to liquidate. And that's essentially what happened with Archegos, isn't it?
2: Yeah, exa- exactly. Although I, I, I would dive back a bit on the over leverage because on, on the pure numbers, right, they, they may have been five to 10 times leverage. We've seen various numbers. When we first wrote the piece, we thought it's five times leverage on $15 billion of, of capital. So that doesn't sound like a lot, for five times, but on $15 billion, it's a hell of a lot. But also, it's 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 not as if leverage is the only issue. Right? Leverage is often – the worst thing about that, of course, is the higher leverage you've got, the less of a buff you've got when something goes wrong. So, you think in this instance, it's not so highly leverage. In fact, it's less leveraged than than most of the investment banks are now, having had all the, the crimps put on their ability to borrow against their capital over the past um, 13 years or so. But yes, it's yeah. – bill huang 's outfit also managed to hoodwink them on just about everything else right so mm-hmm. which which is 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 really the annoying thing because I think back to the financial crisis of two thousand and eight and it was precisely the don 't just look at leverage lesson a warning that I was getting from a lot of people on wall street um but you know the the one of the big things number one. He had up to $75 billion of money at work in what seems to be just a relatively small number of stocks. I mean, just looking at what we heard about from, from Friday and Monday, uh, the investment banks that were quickly selling all these things were selling 20 to $30 billion worth in, what was it, 12 stocks? Maybe one or two yeah. more? I mean, that's reeks of concentration risk that the investment banks clearly paid no attention to.
0: Well, that's, that, that's which brings us to uh, to the, some of the big losers. So the big banks that were selling, the like Morgan Stanley's, Goldman Sachs, big prime brokers who sold giant block trades, um, and there was this idea that they were originally kind of all the banks, a little like long-term capital management back in the day before we all... Unwind these positions. Let's make sure that there's an orderly uh, rush for the exits, if you if you will. But there, but there, there wasn't. And so, Jen, you wrote about Nomura, of course, the Japan, the biggest Japanese investment bank, the one that bought, uh, maybe ironically, the old European and Asian assets of Lehman Brothers when they went bust in 2008. They were one of the losers, so they seem to be holding the bag on what about two billion of losses, two billion dollars of losses. You wrote about that. Today, What's your sense of of the damage this will inflict on the new CEO there and their strategy?
3: Well, the first thought was it's usually the guys who are late to the party that get left holding the bag. And the sense has been you you mentioned the Lehman Brothers acquisition there. That's 12 years ago, but that's still what defines Nomura outside of Japan for everybody and its ambitions to be this global investment bank. If they do lose all of that two billion, they've wiped out their profits from the investment bank, from the wholesale division for year to date, then nine months into their financial year. And the irony is they were having a really good year until that point. Sure, everybody has been. But they've really been pushing this line. Okuda has been pushing this line that... um, they're getting good in specific areas they're not trying to be the next goldman sachs they're not trying to do everything they're focusing on areas where they could be a top five player sort of disciplined approach that everybody likes until one of those top five areas turns out to be us equity options which because Oops. they've given us no yes exactly because they've given us no details we have to assume that that's the one that just blew up we don't right. know anything about their risk management and they've said nothing they're saying nothing beyond the statement as yet
0: they didn't Should even they- say that it was Archegos, did they? They said it's a, a U.S. brokerage or a U.S. Uh, hedge fund client. Is that what they said?
3: Pretty much. We're still doing the comma, widely reported to be Archegos.
0: Put that in context. Two billion dollars of losses for Nomura is what? That's, how does that equate to, let's say, their, their fiscal nine months or whatever, however you look at it?
3: It's pretty much taken out half of their pre-tax profits year to date, wiped out the wholesale division, which is roughly half the bank. The U.S. itself is about 20, 30 percent, 27 percent, I think, of revenues. So this was the biggest part of their investment bank. This was one of the things they were really, really proud of doing well. They'd gone from number six to number one in this space, 14 percent market share. The CEO was boasting about it just three months ago. And bang, they just Oh, that's,
0: how you, that's, that's how you win market share and how you lose it, like all in the space of the, of no time. But this, which brings us, of course, to the biggest loser. Uh, Liam, you're writing about Credit Suisse. Um, now, Credit Suisse has sort of stepped in every sort of bit of manure that's uh, been uh, littering the pathways of Wall Street lately, whether it was Greensill Capital, they, they lost some money in York Capital. They had, they were unlucky with luck in coffee if you remember they were basically defrauded but now this one is the big kahuna so so what how do you view this for thomas gotstein who took over for tijan Tiam, uh just a year ago i mean this is this is just trial by fire and i mean what, what how does it yeah. how does it shake up
1: well you know it's, it's pretty incredible I think, I think the context as you said with credit Suisse is really important here i mean they're they're being hit with this scandal while they were Reeling from the most recent scandal, which was the collapse of Green Seal Capital, this um, supply chain financier. But you know they've they've pretty much, if there is a banana skin to slip on, Credit Suisse find it and do this sort of you know Monty Python sort of backwards. And you, you say know, banana face- skin? I was I was slightly less charitable. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it's it's just astonishing. I mean you listed some of them there. There was also Wirecard. They were vaguely involved with Wirecard last year as well. Um, there's probably many others that we're forgetting now. Um, and, and it looks like like Nomura, you know, that they were sort of at the end of this kind of domino effect um, with Archegos, where there was, you know, Goldman and Morgan Stanley kind of grabbed the good collateral and then everyone less was everyone else was left holding successively, um, you know, crappier shares basically. The question, I think, is what does the new chairman do? So they've got this kind of relatively hard-hitting guy, Antonio Horta Osorio, who is currently the CEO of Lloyd's in the UK. He's coming to take the chairmanship at Credit Suisse next month, assuming he gets elected, which I think is a foregone conclusion. Now, I've heard that he's sort of across this situation already and he's thinking about um, what's going to happen when he comes in. And I mean, it's it looks pretty horrible for Credit Suisse at the moment. The shares are down about 20% in the past month because of this kind of twin crisis they're facing. Um, but you know, I would argue that he should really be using this as a kind of catalyst to do some stuff that the bank should have been doing for quite a long time, shrinking the investment bank, maybe hiving off the domestic Swiss business and um, probably selling asset management as well. And so the, uh, what is,
0: Antonio is, of course, though, a, a retail banker, yeah. Right? I mean, Lloyd's is primarily a retail business. So, was is he going to come in there and be like, "Oh my God!" I mean, this is all this, you know, this is all like toxic-y investment banky, you know, with with I guess uh, an overlay of of of, of wealth management, uh, right? Yeah. So that it's all and it's all wrapped up in strangely, Credit Suisse, unlike other banks, where has a Asia business, but you know, like breaks out in a p and l for for asia Mm -hmm. which i don't think anyone else quite does um what what what's he going to do is he going to just come in and revamp all that stuff you think
1: i mean you know the bare minimum is you know we've heard from people close to him it's sort of he thinks there's a kind of cultural problem uh Credit Suisse potentially you had this spying scandal last year which is another thing that totally slipped my mind when i was talking about the context yeah um and there's there's clearly something structural going on. I mean, I think you're right. Having Asia as a separate business doesn't help. Also, asset management, which is where the Greensill problem was, is sort of within wealth management. So, there's all these kind of bits that the that CEO doesn't necessarily have a direct line into. So, maybe rejigging some of those businesses to make it look more like UBS with these kind of cleaner divisional structures would help. But um, I think there has to be a cultural point as well. I mean, it just doesn't seem like risk managers are empowered to, to do their jobs um, at Credit Suisse as well as they are at other banks, um, just empirically, you know, their, their loan losses yeah. as well are just, you know, frequently higher than UBS's. It's sort of across the board with, with Credit Suisse and risk. Of course, there's they're trading
0: at a big discount to the sum of the parts, I think, as your as your piece makes clear. Yeah, doesn't that make them vulnerable to take over?
1: A takeover is, yeah, I suppose, I mean, it it is, as as you know, better than I do, these kind of investment bank M&A deals are always tricky. Um, but potentially, um, I mean, I know you have a have a kind of theory about, you know, Megan M- Morgan Stanley being a good good uh, acquirer here. Um, but beyond that, I mean, you know, whenever a bank trades at a massive discount in some of its parts, or any business, you'd have to think about a breakup maybe. I mean, there's, there's basically no value for the investment bank at the current share price which is, you know, maybe not that uncommon for investment banks, but you have to wonder whether, you know, hiving off the Swiss business and selling asset management would, would be a kind of sensible option here, given that before all these crises, the criticism was there don't seem to be any synergies. What we've learned in the past six months is what synergies there are can actually be negative synergies. And these businesses tend to kind of drag each other down when one of them fails. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think I think that could be one option.
0: Yeah. OK. So, Anthony, you know, as a veteran of LTCM coverage, the great financial crisis, what do you think, uh, what, what lesson will be learned from this thing for wider Wall
4: Street?
2: Well, I think I think we'll hear a lot of talk about, oh, yes, we've got to make look at our concentration risks again. Oh, look, yeah, derivatives are involved here again, which is how Huang managed to get exposure to most of these companies uh, that have since caused him so much pain. Um <laughs> I, you know, the guy also been banned from trading for four years in Hong Kong. So there's got all these, these red lights that should be flashing here for your risk managers and even your frontline operators, and they just haven't been. I mean, and, and we hear this every single time. So what I'm expecting to see is more focus on trying to fix a lot of that. And then in a couple of years, I bet we'll be back talking about yet another thing where investment banks have missed one or more of the same signs.
0: All right. Well, on that note, thank you Anthony in Melbourne, Jen in Hong Kong, and Liam in London. Keep up the good work, guys.
2: Thank you. Cheers.
0: The Archegos hedge fund family office blow-up is a global phenomenon. So, now I've got uh, our correspondents here. I've got Gina in Washington and Jen in New Jersey. Let me start with you, Gina. I mean, you've looked at the the question of whether this this episode has highlighted gaps or deficiencies in regulation in financial markets. What's your? You, you've written a couple of pieces. One was the question of a family office, which is different than a hedge fund and is regulated or not regulated um, differently than a hedge fund. Um, that's that's one question. The other was um, just generally what it says about how um, the financial stability is run. You know how the, how regulators are viewing uh, these kinds of things in the market. What's your? What is your sense about? what comes out of this? What lessons or questions at least the regulators and policymakers are going to try to come up with?
5: Well, one of the good things about this that regulators here are pointing to is that it doesn't seem to be a systemic risk, at least not at this point. And that's partly because you know banks here um, have had to raise their capital standards, uh, the annual stress tests has scenarios like this where there are these defaults and and you have to make sure that you have enough capital to absorb it. So those rules are not meant to um, prevent them from making mistakes, but to help them um, absorb the losses and to ensure that these banks that are um, systemically important uh, can carry on, which seems like is the case. On hedge funds, that is a bit of a different story. Uh, The U.S. Regulatory system, whether it's the Securities and Exchange Commission or the Federal Reserve um, have been looking more broadly at what you can call the non bank or shadow banking system, particularly since the pandemic uh, kicked off last year and there were uh, major dysfunctions in the Treasury markets in money markets um, and they felt like was was caused by hedge funds and other money managers. that were all just, you know, the dash for cash and looking for liquidity. And frankly, you know, not having um, enough of a cushion that then spiraled into what's supposed to be the most uh, liquid markets in the world in terms of treasuries and and money markets. So they will uh, be looking at the activities of hedge funds and see if there's uh, some more rules that have to be put in place, um, probably within the SEC, to make sure they have more safeguards. Uh, the other thing that this whole episode has highlighted is uh, family offices, which yeah. is what uh, Archigos was. Uh, and because of right, that...
0: Explain that. What is a family office? I mean, yeah. So of...
5: the, it's funny because it, as part of the Dodd-Frank Act in 2010, uh, they wanted to actually... Pull more hedge funds out of the family office world and into the more regulated world. But as we've actually seen as um, the number of wealthy individuals increase, the number of uh, hedge fund founders like Carl Icahn and George Soros got tired of you know, dealing with um, some of the pressures that come with being um, taking outside capital, which means you have to register as an investment advisor. That comes with a whole host of disclosures. You have to you know, talk about your um, key personnel, your assets under management, your investment methodology, you have to open your books to the SEC and um, have them inspect it possibly. And then there's a whole host of enforcement actions that could come with that um, if you don't comply. And being a family office, you actually get to avoid all of that as long as you are managing money um, just for you and your family
0: of course there are a couple of things you mentioned early on this is not a systemic issue now systemic of course it's not it's not blowing up the the global financial markets but you know we have seen that it had a system there is it 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 did bleed into the system in the sense that you had for instance credit suisse is now trying to tot up the losses um and that is obviously a a globally systemically important financial institutions as well um goldman sachs morgan stanley of course dumped a lot of their positions but I mean but it wasn't you know and and there in there is a question of whether it hits the capital of one of these banks like I think Credit Suisse there is a question our colleague Liam wrote that there could be a hit to their tier one capital but it isn't bringing down is that what you mean by it's it's sort of it's it's not systemic but it's yeah
5: yeah no exactly and um And, you know, I think to some extent, some of the U.S. regulators here are kind of patting themselves on the back that it's these um, overseas firms that are being hit a bit more. Um, Morgan Stanley and Goldman, as you say, did have to dump a lot of shares, but it seems like um, they acted quickly enough and and. also just had enough of a cushion that it's not going to have a significant effect on their balance sheet Um, but you know well this is still playing out so we shall see Um, but it's as you say still had ripple effects and that's why um, us regulators will take a look but it will probably be more in this non-bank world where they have much more of a free ride they don't have these capital requirements that the banks do but they are increasingly showing how interconnected they are to um these globally global systemically important banks and then therefore you know the regulators are going to care about them more
0: yeah it certainly will be a topic of conversation i mean and it, it wasn't just it was just a week or two ago that elizabeth warren uh the scourge of wall street was <laughs> questioning uh i believe janet yellen Treasury Secretary about the systemic riskiness of a fund manager, particularly BlackRock. Where does that, how does that fit into this whole picture?
5: Yeah, Warren has been on a BlackRock kick for quite some time. I think she was upset that uh, under the Barack Obama administration, the Fi- Financial Stability Oversight Council, which Yellen now leads as Treasury Secretary did look at uh, whether these big asset managers should be deemed um, systemically important and decided uh, to take a pass on that and instead look at them in terms of their activities. And I think Warren felt like, you know, that was not a good decision and she wants them to revisit it. Uh, Yellen interestingly said that she doesn't think these uh, SIFI designations are appropriate for companies like BlackRock and instead looking at them as um, in terms of their activities. Now, that may change um, as some of these issues keep popping up. I mean, even before the Archegos blow up, there was uh, GameStop, which involved Citadel more on the market-making side than the hedge fund side. But you know, Ken Griffin is tied to both of them as, as the founder. And that firm is also now in the sites of regulators here, including at at FSOC.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Well, that's interesting. Keep an eye on that. Obviously, uh, Gina. Uh, let me just turn to you, Jen. Uh, one of the the well, the main catalyst seems to have been for uh, for Bill Huang's for selling was the decline in one of its core positions. Now we've we've established he had lots of money leveraged up and in very concentrated, you know, small number of shares. One of them was was Viacom uh cbs and they um they they seem to have been sort of the straw that broke the camel's back is that right
4: yeah, well, it certainly seems that way. Um, so, just to kind of put this in context, uh, you know, Viacom CBS has been doing, you know, extraordinarily well, or at least they were since the beginning of the year. Their shares were up, uh, you know, over 160%. Uh, they hit a high watermark of like $100 a share. They were cruising along. A lot of that had to do with their new streaming service, Paramount Plus, because everybody thinks, you know, if you have a Netflix type of play, You know, it could be the future of TV. Um, So, uh, you know, the chief executive, Bob Backish, decided, um, you know, a a week ago that, you know, we're going to take advantage of the situation and we're going to raise some capital and um, issue new equity. And it was about $3 billion, which, you know, seems completely reasonable. And they were going to take that money and put it into their, uh, invest it into their streaming service. But that's where it seems like everything fell apart. Um, because I guess Archego's position was, was, uh, you know, in Viacom, and they they apparently had to sell, and then it sent the shares down 27% last Friday, which, you know, is, is, is a, not great if you're if you're the media company
0: right but so if you're sitting there with a big chunk you've got the stock crashing you know yeah you you probably it probably forced it sort of seems to have been the thing that at least one of the catalysts for the wholesale dumping of the portfolio or certainly the, the margin calls that led to that but what is so what are those guys at Viacom thinking like about all this, like, are they like, you know, they're like, well, we didn't mean to do it. I mean, yeah, I
4: mean, I, you know, I think part, part, partially they're like, we, they, they didn't know who this arch A goes, they didn't even know it was in the, in in their company. So there's that issue. They right? didn't
0: know they were shareholders, basically. No, they, they had share, no,
4: whatever. they had no idea. They had no clue. So that sort of, you know, begs this question of, you know, if, if somebody's able to move your stock like that, wouldn't you like to know, right? Who who these people are? Um, but you know, in in some ways, you know, there there are things they can do about it, and there are things they can't. I mean, they're they're just sort of like have to, you know. What 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 can they do really? Although it's it's never good when your your shares fall that much. However, I will point out they're still up over twenty percent from year to date, and so now it's just kind of a question of you know, what? what is Viacom CBS really worth? What, what's going on? And they got,
0: billion, right? they got their $3 right?
4: They got their $3 billion. They got their $3 three billion in the nick of time. So that's great. But then you have to wonder, next time they're going to go out and, and try and do this again, can they do it as easily? You know, are they going to have this sort of like label slapped on them? Like they're... They're the cursed
0: stock. They're oh, the cursed stock. Yeah. SpongeBob SquarePants. Uh, blew up the market and yeah. no one wants to go near him again. I don't know. Yeah. I mean,
4: yeah that could be one effect.
0: All right. Well, thanks, uh, Jen, in New Jersey, Gina in Washington. Uh, next week, we'll probably hear of some other obscure uh, family office uh, in some well-known stock that ends up keeping us all very occupied. Until then, <laughs> I'll talk to you soon, guys.
4: Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Rob.
0: That's our show for the week. Thanks to our producer, Freddie Joiner in New York. And our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fixes. Check us out every day at BreakingViews.com. Thank you.